I heard a story about a couple of elderly people living in a uh, retirement community. One was a widower, one was a widow. And they'd known one another for quite a few years, and they uh, went to a supper one evening, and the whole community was there. But the man was kind of looking looking across the table and and you know thought you know i I need to just go ahead and and ask her the question that I've wanted to ask her all these years and so he he gets up the courage and he walks over there and he uh, he says, "Will you marry me?" Well, of course, she's sort of shocked by this, and she just a few seconds go by and then she says, "Well, yes, I will, I will marry you." Well, they had a great evening. And uh, and they, they parted, and um, they decided that they would talk about you know the date and the details in the days to come. Well, the next morning, the man wakes up and he realizes, with his poor memory, he can't remember if she said yes or no. He's just trying to figure this out, and so finally he says, "I I just got to call her." So he calls her up. And he says, um, you remember the wonderful evening we had yesterday? Uh, I just, uh, you know, I asked you to marry me. And and would you mind just telling me, did you say yes or no? Well, the woman, instead of being uh, hurt by this, she expresses great relief. She says, oh, I said yes. And I'm so glad you called because I couldn't remember who asked me. Oh, boy. Well, you know, whether we realize it or not, the future and all of its joys and limitations is coming. It's coming like a freight train. And one thing I love about that story is that even though There are parts of us that get older. Our faith never gets old. It's always new. It always feels very fresh. And in a sense, it's almost like every day we're starting over. Because our relationship with God is one that requires a faith that's day by day. It's not something that, like a degree that we work real hard for a few years and then we cross the stage and uh, we got it. It's not like a, something that we accomplish and it's once it's done, it's done. Our walk with God and our faith is something that never gets old. It is something that remains new. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus chides the particular church there in Ephesus because they had lost their first love. They had grown past that initial uh, zing in their walk with God. And uh, we're not to do that. We are to keep our, our love and our faith in the Lord young and vibrant and fresh. And nobody exemplifies this better than the life of Abraham. So turn, if you would, with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 24. Let's continue our series as we look at the life and today, the death of Abraham. What a great journey this has been. Abraham was called by God all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 
if you remember the many weeks ago where we started with Abraham, he, um, he was called by God to leave a place that was familiar. In fact, he was 75 at the time. So just think about being 75 years old, being very settled, very comfortable, very successful, and then God just decides uh, you're going to leave, you're going to go to a place that you've never been before, and even though you don't have any children, I'm going to give you children and make a great nation from you. In fact, from you, I'm going to bless everybody on the planet. All the world will be blessed through you, potentially. Well, Abraham, in great faith, followed God, not knowing where he was going. He followed God into the great unknown and ended up in Canaan, uh, what we know today as Israel or the promised land. And God promised Abraham not only the land and descendants, but also blessing that through him, all of the descendants, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, no sooner did Abraham got to the land than he began to have to live out this faith that was new to him. A famine occurred, and Abraham responded poorly. They went to Egypt. He lied about Sarah. You remember that whole story. They came back, and then they began the struggle of trusting God for the, the son or the, that uh, God had promised. Is it going to be the servant Ishmael? Is it going to be uh, is it going to be the servant Eliezer? Is it going to be the the son Ishmael from the slave wife? Oh no, it's going to be from Sarah. It's going to be a child of a miracle. And Sarah's faith also was put on the line. And Hebrews tells us that she believed that God would bring it about, and God did bring it about. No sooner did they have the promise in their laps with little baby Isaac. And Isaac grew to be a a strapping young man. And God said, okay, Abraham, it's time for faith uh, 101 or 102, you might say now, that uh, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to give him back to me, the very one that you've been waiting for all this time. Abraham's great faith chose to even trust God in that, and he did it. Well, he he almost did it. He would have done it if God hadn't stopped him. And then we see last week with the death of Sarah, last time we were together, we saw with the death of Sarah that Abraham continued to have a young faith. He continued to have a faith that trusted God. And by burying Sarah in the promised land, by buying a small portion of the promised land and buried Sarah in the place that Abraham knew that one day he would own all of, even though at the time he didn't own any. Well, in Genesis 24 we see that the faith of Abraham continues. And I was talking to, uh, or with corresponding with uh, one of you ladies there in the class after our Genesis 22 study. Uh, one of the ladies in the class wrote me and said how Genesis 22 had been very meaningful to her. And especially one of the things that I loved about what she said was that even though many of us, many in the uh, marathon class are up in age. We're still very much still learning. And I love that humility and that honesty because it's true. Here we see it, it's true in our lives and we see it in Abraham's life. There was never a point in his life that he didn't have to trust God. And we're going to see that in this chapter as well. Well, in Genesis 24, let's, uh, quite a bit here. We're not going to read the whole chapter because uh, it would take us all the way through lunch. But let's uh, read in verse 1, and we'll just make our way down through some of these verses. And, of course, uh, 
make application to our lives. Verse 1, Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. But you will go out, you will go to my country and to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. You know, placing the hand under the thigh today is not really something we do. That's a custom that uh, <laughs> was old. And uh, the idea there, it's really a euphemism, putting your hand under the thigh. I mean, you can imagine what Abraham is suggesting here. It's placing your hand in a very personal place. And it's basically, if we could paraphrase what he's saying is, take my life in your hands. I want you to swear that uh, you're going you're gonna to make, make good on what I'm about to, ask you, about to ask you to do. Abraham's solemn request of his servant was to go back to uh, Haran and to go back to Padan Aram, is, is also called, and to find a wife there for Isaac. And the servant, of course, asks um, what she didn't want to come. Should I take Isaac back there? In other words, let's say that I find a wife, but she didn't want to come to Canaan. Abraham says, don't take my son back there. The land that God promised to Abraham's descendants was key in this. And Abraham realized that. That's why he buried Sarah there. He doesn't want Isaac to go back to Padan Aram. He wants the wife to come to the promised land, because that's the land that they're to live in. So notice, I mean, right up front, this wasn't just Abraham uh, arranging a marriage. This wasn't just Abraham prepping for the family inheritance. This was Abraham doing his best to make sure that the blessing of God in him is going to pass on to the next generation. The burden, uh, thankfully, wasn't on Abraham. It wasn't on the servant. It was on God. Because notice what, uh, what the servant asked, what if the woman doesn't come back, which is sort of the tension of the story. Abraham again shows his faith, and he says, God's angel will guide you. Abraham is putting his faith in God, in God's providence. So even though he's got a trusted servant on a very specific mission, ultimately Abraham's trust is in the Lord and in the Lord alone. So let's see, how, so let's see what happens. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. 
He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, Please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, Drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Note here that although the providence of God were over all things, the servant is still demonstrating dependence on God by prayer. Even though sent on Abraham's mission, even though the angel is leading uh, uh, the servant, the servant still prays. And the, the servant prays some very specific things that uh, this is how I'm going to tell, be able to tell that you have guided me and which specific girl is going to be the wife of Isaac. And it's not just random prayer. Like, uh, you know, if she happens to say she likes the Dallas Cowboys, that's the one. It's not a random prayer. Like just looking for some random sign. This is very specific and there's a reason behind it. I heard about a guy one time who was uh, praying to the Lord for a wife. This is a true story. The, the initial one that I told you about the, the elderly couple was a joke, if you didn't get it. <laughs> but this is a true story. This guy wanted a wife, and, and he ran into this girl who had a chihuahua that's ear kind of drooped down. And when he grew up, he had a chihuahua with an ear that drooped down. This was a sign from God, he thought. And so <laughs> he took that as a sign from God, and I think they got married. But anyway, it's a true story. And uh, that's not the way to find a wife. You're not looking for chihuahuas with ears that hang down. You're looking for a person of character. And that's what this servant was praying for, to pray for a, a young woman that would be willing to water camels. The spring, the jar, the words, the prayer, it wasn't a random prayer. It was very specific. Look at what happens now. Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, see God's providence there, came out with a jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me have a little water from your jar. (laughs) I like that, a little water. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will also draw for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. The servant asks for a drink for himself, and God's choice for Isaac's wife would answer by going above and beyond, providing water for the servant. 
but water for 10 camels. Do you know how much water a camel can drink? I looked it up and found a variety of uh, answers, but basically it looks like about 30 gallons of water. A A thirsty camel can drink 30 gallons of water in one sitting. And notice we got 10 camels here, and it says that uh, I will draw water until they have finished drinking, verse 19. So this is a lot of trips down to the well while uh, the servant there is just sitting there watching. Doesn't offer to help, just watches Rebecca. What is the servant looking for? What was he praying for? He was praying for a woman with a servant's heart with a hospitable and a kind spirit, with a a woman who would be willing to complete the task she started. Notice that it says that that the servant watched to see whether the Lord has made his journey successful. She had already said the magic words, I'll water your camel, camels, but um, it wasn't just saying it, it was doing it. And he was watching to see if she'd finish. Ten camels. So 300 gallons of water later, We read in verse 22, When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring, weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists, weighing ten shekels in gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed, and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Well, several principles uh, come from the text, and the first one is so encouraging to us, and it's simply this, that we can trust God to lead us as we seek to do His will. We can trust God to lead us as we seek to do His will. Both of those are true, or are important. It's not that we can just trust God to lead us, but we seek to do His will. You know that wonderful verse that we love in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. You see, it's seeking to do His will that is the key to perceiving God's leading in our lives. It's tough to recognize God's leading in your life if you're not wanting to do His will. But when you're seeking to do His will, His leading becomes clear. This was the servant's experience, and he acknowledged this with his prayer there in verse 27. Blessed be God who has guided me. Um, the Lord not only confirmed his choice of Rebecca by her actions, but by the specific answer to prayer, by the so-called coincidence that a woman from Abraham's family, in fact, remember it was Abraham's request back up in verse 4, that the servant should go to Abraham's family, and God led to that very place. And the, uh, the word that the servant uses in verse 27 for guided, It's the same word that uh, David uses in Psalm 23. Remember that uh, verse in Psalm 23, I think it's verse 3, that says that he guides me 
and the path of righteousness for his name's sake? It's the same Hebrew word. And the idea there is God guides for the purpose of his will being accomplished. That's what David said in Psalm 23, and that's exactly what we see here as well. We can trust God to lead us as we seek to do his will. God is committed to his will in our lives, especially those things that he's promised. He will bring them about. And when we are willing to cooperate with that, it's a beautiful thing to see God open the doors. Have you ever seen that happen in your life? You can probably think back to those times where God's clear leading has opened a door that you could not have imagined he would do. But he did it in such a way that he brings himself glory and Time proved it true as you walk through that door that that was his will for you and that he brought about his greater glory and your greater good through walking with him in faith. I've seen that. I've seen that a lot in not only in my family, but in my uh, in my vocation and the different positions that he has led me to, the closing of those positions, the opening of the next one, and how God mir- miraculously or providentially, I should say, has prepared me for a season that I didn't even know was coming, but He did. God is like that. And if you're seeking to do His will, He will uh, He will lead you into that next step. Well, let's summarize a few of the verses that follow rather than read them, because some of it is uh, just re- retold, and it's retold for the purpose of emphasis, But we can simply say that without having to to reread them for emphasis. But Rebecca takes the servant home to her brother named Laban. Now, we know Laban more so from the Jacob story in which Laban is a rascal. But here, Laban comes off as a pretty good guy. Maybe he got rascally as he got older. You know, that happens sometimes. And uh, a man, this man Laban, would would play prominently with uh, Rebecca's son Jacob sort of ironic. Well, the servant reiterates the details of the story to Laban, makes the request that Rebekah be able to leave with him to become Isaac's wife. Look down at verse 49 and uh, see what the servant ultimately requests. Verse 49, So now, if you are going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you, bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And then they have a few more words. Look down at verse 57. Then they said, We will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent Away their sister, Rebecca, and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. I like this because it shows that it's one thing to for God to clearly lead. It's also another thing to have the faith to follow. Sometimes God will open the door in a very clear way, but uh, we don't want to go that way. Uh, Rebecca gives great a great example here of faith. She says, I will go. Um, And remember up front too, Rebecca wasn't doing all this camel watering because she knew there was something in it for her. This was a total stranger. She, She didn't realize she had anything to gain from doing this. 
And the fact that she did it this one time shows that this was the pattern of her character. It wasn't just a one-off day where she was deciding to do a good deed. This is who she really was. And we see in this, um, in the mentioning of the Lord here, the Lord, this matter comes from the Lord, verse 50. And so Rebecca says that she'll go. Um, remember the servant's initial question to Abraham? Abraham said, go and find a wife. And what the servant says, well, what if the woman is not willing to follow me to this land? And here we see in uh, Rebecca's words, I will go. She is willing. And this is important because we need a woman of faith. We don't just need a good camel waterer. We don't just need a, a, a woman who's kind, a woman who's hospitable. We need a woman as Isaac's wife, who is a woman of faith, who is willing to trust God in the great unknown. Now, think about this. When, when this same scenario happened from this same place with Abraham and Sarah, they left together. Rebecca was going with total strangers to marry a man she had never even said hello to. Talk about faith. She was trusting God probably more than anybody in the group, this uh, godly young Rebecca. Well, they depart. Look down at verse 62 here toward the end of the chapter. Now Isaac had come from going to Be'er Lahai for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field toward us? And the servant says, He is my master. In other words, this is a guy you're going to marry. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You see the servant explaining to Isaac God's providential leading, and now Isaac is the final player in this great drama. It's kind of funny when you look at this chapter because this, this is all about finding Isaac a wife, and Isaac doesn't enter into this at all until the very end when he's just, here's your wife. It's like, well, okay, thanks. It's like kind of driving through McDonald's. But uh, Isaac, Isaac is not uh, the important player in this particular chapter. He is the one for whom this is being done. But the illustration of the great faith is that of Abraham, is that of the servant, and is that of Rebekah. But also, you got to uh, admire Isaac here because what he does is he, he takes her, and look at the, the progression. He brought her into the mother's tent. He took Rebekah. She became his wife. He loved her. And then Isaac was comforted. This is important because you see a transition occurring a couple of ways. First of all, the mention of Sarah and Rebekah going into Sarah's tent shows in a literary sense, and in a literal sense, you might also say that Rebekah is now the matriarch of the family. Sarah's gone, 
And now Rebecca is the one who is taking this matriarchal important role in the blessing of God being passed along to the generations of the nations to follow. But also you see a transition from Abraham to Isaac, because the servant calls Isaac my master. Now, obviously, Abraham is still alive. Abraham is still the the head of things. But in a literary sense, or, or I don't even like that phrase as much. You can say in a in a in a uh, in a in a sense of the spirit of God inspiring in an inspirational sense, uh, God's overarching uh, control of the story and of the situation, and of what He's revealing to us. We see that the transition from Abraham to Isaac is being accomplished here, from Abraham and Sarah to now Isaac and Rebekah. A transition was occurring with the people of God. And that's important to remember because it wasn't, again, just about getting a wife for Isaac. Um, You know, Abraham's goal was to ensure that God's program would pass to the next generation. The next generation, when we think about this, applying this to our lives, certainly is our children, uh, our grandchildren, the generations that follow us, those that we can influence. But it's not just a matter of passing our faith along to our children and grandchildren. The principle here is more of making sure that the work of God in the next generation, that passing the baton to the work of God, what we might call the ministry, and making sure that the ministry is passed on to the next generation. And it's so easy to confuse these sometimes, as if the ministry is some kind of a dynasty and ministry passes on to family like some kind of an inheritance, God is, God's plan is not always, uh, it's not about legacy. It, our, our plan is that our legacy falls into God's plan. Um, they're not always one and one. And again, this wasn't just about a wife for Isaac. This was about a marriage that was essential to God's work in the world. God would work through Rebekah to bring about the same miraculous conception and the same miraculous uh, progress of God's work in the world that he did through Abraham and Sarah. Uh, We're just going to look at a few verses here in chapter 25 as well as we look at Abraham's final breath. Um, The first six verses there just talk about Abraham's other descendants and uh, Abraham's other wife, probably after Sarah died. Abraham marries again. Amazing. And he has more sons, and uh, so that they would not be rivals for Isaac, um, or anyone would confuse that the blessing is going to go through Isaac alone, Abraham sends them away, and now Isaac and Rebekah would take up the mantle that Abraham and Sarah had. Verse 7, we see the, the, the death of Abraham. Look at this with me. Verse 7, these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about that after the death of Abraham, God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Bier Lahai Roi. Bier Lahai Roi, if you remember, that's where Hagar 
that's where where the Lord heard um, Hagar's prayer. In fact, the significance of the of the name Be'er Lahairai, it's the, it means the well of the living one who sees me. It's a beautiful name. Well, here's the second principle. Um, even after the death of great people, the plan of God lives on. Even after the death of great people, the plan of God lives on. How important it is to, uh, to realize that and how important it is to plan for that. You probably remember, uh, I know many of you do, but this, uh, this week, in fact, I believe it was yesterday, is the third anniversary of Dr. Toussaint's homecoming. And uh, I always remember his great foresight to uh, step aside at Dallas Seminary when he could have kept on teaching. I mean, he did struggle some physically, more and more to get around, but his teaching, his mind was still just razor sharp as we got to experience each week in class. But he had the wisdom and he had the courage to know that his season at the seminary had passed and he was willing, even though he could have kept going, to step down and allow someone else to take that place. And what do you know? The work at Dallas Seminary continued on and continues on to this day. I like that. God delights in using us, but He doesn't need us. <laughs> That's hard for us. We want God to need us. We want to for Him. We want to think that uh, you know, Lord, I'm pretty important to to Your program. And uh, it, you know, you really ought to overlook the sin in my life because, um, truth be told, you need me. Ah, it's not true at all, is it? We see this in the scripture that that God, our participation is a privilege. It's not a right, and God doesn't need us. He, he He's delighted to use us, but He doesn't need us. The Trinity got along in eternity past without us, and somehow the plan of God, these thousands of years before we were born, uh, worked just fine. And you know, after we're gone, God's plan is not going to skip a beat. I think about other great teachers like Howard Hendricks or Elizabeth Elliot or Ravi Zacharias, who recently passed. Those who lived long and faithful lives, God used them powerfully. And sometimes, like when Ravi died, when Ravi Zacharias died recently, I remember thinking, oh, Lord, couldn't you have taken like Brother Schmo over here who's not doing anything? Why did you take this incredibly effective teacher this apologist, world-renowned uh, scholar and uh, apologist who is able in a powerful and a convincing way to defend the truths of Scripture. Why would you take Ravi? Why didn't you take you know, somebody else? And uh, it's just a great reminder that God doesn't need Ravi. God doesn't need the most powerful and eloquent uh, speakers. God didn't need Abraham. He didn't need Sarah or Rebecca or Isaac or you or me. But it's a privilege to participate in God's plan. I think also about the untimely deaths of those not only who lived a long life, but even those who lived died in their prime, like Blaise Pascal or David Brainerd or Jonathan Edwards or Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Or even Keith Green. Remember the singer, Keith Green, died in the plane crash? I mean, the guy was in his 30s. They all died in their prime, and yet their short lives lived for the kingdom of God offered so much more than uh, many lives that have lived out their full days but are unsurrendered to God. 
Well, Abraham knew this, and Abraham prayed for and planned out a succession plan that went into effect long before uh, it, he had to take it. Uh, he had to make it in effect. He prepared for his death, for the work of God to keep going, and he didn't leave it in Isaac's lap to figure it all out. We consider the life of Abraham. There's one more principle that emerges here, and you kind of look at it from Abraham's whole life, and that is simply this that we need faith to walk with God, even to our dying day. I've, uh, I've called this message, Your Faith Never Gets Old. And the reason is because it doesn't. It's like I said up front, you know, we need to live with a young faith, even when we get older. And we need to, we need to have faith to walk with God, even to our dying day. Think about Abraham all along, his leaving Ur, the famine in Canaan, the tension of waiting on Isaac, the tension of sacrificing Isaac, the, the, the tension of finding a wife for Isaac. All of this required faith from the very beginning of our seeing Abraham to the very end of his life. Life for Abraham was a life that had to trust God. And it's the same for us. We're never going to get to the point where we don't have to trust God. You might have noticed this as you get older that uh, there's always something you're trusting God for. There's something you're trusting God for right now. And it's different than it was you know, years ago, and it'll be different than it will be in the future. Well, the, fun- the principles, once again, just to summarize, is that we can trust God to lead us as we seek to do His will. Second, even after the death of great people, the plan of God lives on. And finally, we need faith to walk with God even to our dying day. I love the life of Abraham because it's not just, you know, this old patriarch that we get to read about. It's not just a guy in stained glass or in the pages of the Old Testament who was the, uh, the forefather of the Hebrew nation. Abraham is us. He is a guy that uh, was called to leave everything that this world offered to follow a God who promised him great things, most of which he would get after the resurrection. That's us too, isn't it? It's a life of faith that we live every single day. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for Abraham's life, uh, as we just said, because it represents our own in so many ways. We need his example of uh, failure, of faith, of faithfulness and perseverance to walk with you up and down, failures and successes each day of his life. Lord, would you help us as we think about our lives and that we would never get to the point to where our faith gets old, even though we get older, but that our faith would always stay young and fresh and vibrant, just like our first love with Jesus Christ. Father, for each of us who... Um, look at this particular season of life, whether it's uh, a time in the pandemic or if it's just these general days of this season of life, that we would would seek you and that we would ask you to take us in a direction that would give us an opportunity to trust you and that you would be pleased to work through us. Though you don't need us, you're pleased to use us and that we pray that you would use us in spite of ourselves for your glory. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.